Let's, let's pray together as we get underway. Well, our Father, we're grateful for this opportunity this morning to uh, think of your word and reflect upon it. We pray for your grace as we consider it. May we have the grace to understand it and to believe your word. We want to have grace to apply your word this morning. And so we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts unto that end, that Christ might be glorified in our lives as individuals and in our church here at Trinity Bible Church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have uh, friendships and relationships of various kinds uh, in the world, and uh, often those friendships or relationships are defined by a certain common interest. Uh, It might be a common hobby. So you go fishing together or something like that where you have a common interest and you do it together and the relationship is defined around that particular common hobby. It might be a common social status. This isn't, it shouldn't be true of Christians, but there are certainly people in the world who will not uh, be your friend if they're not in the same social class as you or the same uh, social status. Some people find their greatest affinities by their uh, political platform. They they find an an affinity or a, a friendship with others who believe exactly as they do with regard to the policies that they think uh, should be uh, uh, done at the state level or the government uh, level. This past week, the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl for the first time in 50 years. And uh, we saw some, something of this social dynamic where the entire city of Kansas City rejoiced. You know, they had the big celebration parade and you could see how the whole city, as it were, came together that was, that was a, a commonality. They, they were so happy for their team after so many repeated failures had finally won the Super Bowl. I'm from Missouri, so I was, I was very happy of that myself. And uh, some of the people actually interviewed at the parade said something to the effect that in the midst of a country right now that seems so divided, how nice it was to have a reprieve from that as the whole city, as it were, came together around this common bond of the Kansas City Chiefs. My point is, is that relationships and friendships and social bonds of all kinds in the world typically form around these kinds of common interests. And in in a sense, I think that that's natural and to a degree it is sensible. People just gravitate naturally towards others who are like them socially or maybe it's economically or politically or whatever it might be. They, They tend to like and maybe even love other people who are very similar to them in their own interests or status. Maybe they look like them. Maybe they just like the same things. There are these ties, these social ties that that, that, that form the nexus of that relationship. And again, I think that's somewhat natural. And yet, as we're going to see this morning, in Philemon, the church is different, at least in a sense. It's different not in the sense that we don't have anything in common and yet somehow we still like one another. Rather, we do have something in common and it is in that sense that as a church we share this type of commonality or this type of common bond that runs deeper than any other commonality that you'll find in the world. 
It's deeper than any social bond or economic bond or political bond. We share a common bond in as much as we together as Christians have been redeemed from our sins. We have been brought near to God. We have been brought near therefore to one another as those who are members of the new humanity or the new creation. We belong to another world. We belong to the age to come. Because of the gospel, because of Christ, we together have a share in eternal joy. And because of this reality of the gospel, we are bound together. There is this commonality that we share, but it runs deeper than any other commonality that you'll find in the world. We are members of this same family, which is the family of Abraham, and that is the family of God. It is true that sometimes in the church, we still gravitate towards those who are like us, uh, socially or economically. It is easy to do that, and again, in some sense, it's natural. The youth want to sit with the youth, the college students want to sit with the college students. You can see this. The, the parents of young children after the service want to go talk with other parents of young children about how parenting is coming along, so on and so forth. Uh, those in, in retirement want to talk about life in retirement. So in other words, it's natural, I think, in a sense, to gravitate, even in the church, toward those who are somewhat like you. Perhaps that's even helpful in in some way, but my point is that the gospel does transcend these natural divisions. Every Christian who belongs to Christ, we belong then therefore to one another as well. And the word for this common bond is the word fellowship. It is a, is a rich word. It doesn't occur very often in the New Testament, but, but this word is a rather rich word that connotes this deep, an abiding unity grounded in the gospel that produces joy in the Lord and joy in one another. And as Christians, we have that bond. We have that fellowship and we can, to use it as a verb, we can fellowship then with one another in the faith because of what Christ has done for us in bringing us to God and to one another. And I think, in a nutshell, Philemon is all about that rich concept of fellowship in the faith. If there's one thing to take away, that is the one thing, and if you can see it on the slide even, that is the title of the sermon. Philemon is a story about fellowship. It's a story about fellowshipping with one another that's grounded in the gospel because of what Christ has done for us. Now, in order to make sense of Philemon, I'm not asking for you to go to sleep, but this is gonna be a little bit more of just background material. I need to introduce the social dynamic of the Greco-Roman world, I think to make sense of the kinds of things we see going on here in the letter. So if you're taking notes, this is really the first point. It's just an introduction to the letter as a whole. The letter of Philemon is a very personal letter. You could probably hear the personal quality of it when uh, Drew Lynn was reading it. I, I think it's the most personal of all the letters of Paul, and in the New Testament, it's probably rivaled only by 3 John. It's like 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, 
In that, Paul is writing to an individual. Here, of course, his name is Philemon. It's very personal in that sense. Paul evidently knows Philemon, and, uh, and, and he writes him a very personal letter about a matter in Philemon's household. That seems to me to be very personal. And yet, it's not a private letter, but a rather public letter. Those two things don't, are not at odds to one another. It's, it's personal, but it's public. And I think we can see this by the, all the names that uh, Paul mentions. You can even see in your uh, copy of the Bible in verse 1. Notice Paul doesn't just mention himself as a sender of the letter, but he also names Timothy, our brother. So in other words, Timothy is a co-sender of the letter. This does not mean, by the way, that Timothy wrote the letter. Paul is clearly the author of the letter. Paul, Paul's the one who consistently says, I am a prisoner in the Lord. I am an old man, whatever it might be. And nevertheless, Timothy's there too. And probably this means that Timothy has some kind of relationship already with Philemon and the church that Philemon is a part of. And Paul wants to make sure, Philemon, you know, Timothy agrees with me on this point. Also, in verse 1 and into verse 2, we see not only Philemon's name, but notice in verse 2, we see Aphia, who is called our sister, and we see the name Archippus, who is called our fellow soldier, and then, notice in, at the very end of verse 2, it says, the church in your house. We don't know very much about these people, Aphia, most people think, and I think that this is right, Likely, she is Philemon's wife, the lady of the household. Archippus, being called a fellow soldier, my best guess is he is a leader in the church. And the church is very much connected with Philemon because it meets in his house, which is a very common thing back then for Christians to do. They would, they would often meet in houses, and Philemon is the host of the church. So in other words, Philemon is the principal recipient of the letter, but it's pretty clear since you have other named recipients, this letter is not just for Philemon's eyes only. It's not private in that sense. It's very personal, but it's also public. In a sense, I think Paul expects this letter to Philemon to be read, or at least known by, all the church that meets in his house because they are going to need to bear witness that in fact Philemon has listened to Paul's request. It's a request to an individual, but it is a public request. So as we continue on with our introduction to the letter, we have to ask, well, why, why the letter at this particular point? Um, why did God, of all, of all things, the Holy Spirit could have inspired Paul to write any number of letters, but he inspired Paul to write this very personal letter that's only 25 verses long. What, why did Paul see fit to write this? And I think the best way to answer that historical situation question is to look at the major characters in the letter. And there are three of them. One is Paul, of course. One is Onesimus, which I'll mention more about in just a minute. And one is, of course, Philemon. Paul, in verse nine, calls himself an old man. I, you know, I don't know how many of you old men in the room would call yourself an old man in a letter. Paul calls himself an old man. Back then, I think if you're 60 years old, you're an old man. Maybe not anymore, but life expectancy wasn't much beyond 60, so you've made it to 
You've made it to oldness by the time you get to 60. So I think Paul is probably about 60 years old and he calls himself an old man. Also, he calls himself a prisoner. Can you see this in verse one? He calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He says he's a prisoner twice in this letter, verse one and verse nine. In verse 10, he talks about my imprisonment. And again, uh, in verse 13, my imprisonment for the gospel. At the very end of the letter, we see in verse 23, Epaphras is called my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. In other words, where, where is Paul? He's in prison, isn't he? It's very clear from this letter. He's, this is one of those prison epistles of the, of the letter collection of Paul. He's there evidently because of his faithfulness to the Lord in the gospel. He preached the gospel of Christ and people hated him and threw him in jail. I don't think, by the way, that he's in a dark, dank dungeon where you can hardly see because, because people can still visit him. So maybe we should think more in terms of uh, the situation like of a house arrest where he's, he's able to still receive visitors like um, uh, maybe some of the co-workers named in verse 24, maybe Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke can still come in and out and see him. Obviously, he can still write letters and expect that the letters are going to be carried off to their destination in a faithful way, but still he's not free. He's not a free man at the point of writing this letter. And I just want to say um, on the side, Paul was a great Christian man, and yet he was thrown into prison very evidently so. And, and some people think the Christian life, if I'm faithful to the Lord, will be easy. It'll be a life that's full of ease and comfort. I mean, that doesn't square with this, does it? Paul was faithful to the Lord and he was in prison for years of his life. And he was, and he was mistreated in many ways. And I think in many ways, that's a nice model for us to remember being faithful to the Lord is difficult sometimes and it brings remarkable persecution sometimes because a servant is not greater than his master and if they hated Jesus, they will us as well. But it's worth it to be faithful to the Lord even in the midst of much affliction because as Jesus tells us, if you lose your life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel, you'll find it, you'll save it. So that's who Paul is, just briefly. He's the, he's the author of our letter, and that's the situation he finds himself in. But also, I want to talk about this other fellow named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus isn't named until verse 10. You, you can look down the page to verse 10. Verse 10 says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, Onesimus is hardly named at all in the letter, and yet I think he's the principal reason for the letter. It's not an overstatement to say, without Onesimus, this letter never gets written. There's no need for it. And yet, you can tell, Paul has a close relationship with Onesimus. He calls him, my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment. What does he mean by that? Paul called his converts his children. He saw himself as a spiritual father to these individuals who became Christians when he shared the gospel with them and they, and they became Christians through his ministry. One clear text that indicates this is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 15, where Paul calls the Corinthians, my beloved children. All the Corinthian church was Paul's beloved children. And he says the Corinthian church had many guides in Christ 
but not many fathers because I became your father, he says, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Very clear. It's, it's at the moment of conversion underneath his ministry that they then become his spiritual children. He, as it were, fathers them in the faith. So it's likely that verse 10 here means that Onesimus became a Christian under Paul's ministry while Paul was in prison. And again, just on the side, I think this is remarkable. It shows us the gospel is not chained when Christians are in chains. I mean, Paul's in prison, but people are still becoming Christians. Isn't that amazing to you? The gospel still can run and speed on, even though Christians are under remarkable persecution and sometimes are even in prison themselves. Well, verse 11 continues the story of Onesimus. Verse 11 says, Formerly, Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Verse 12 goes on and says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. And then it goes on from there. We can tell... After Onesimus became a Christian, he stayed with Paul. He, he, he was useless prior to becoming a Christian, verse 10 says, I'm sorry, verse 11. But now he's useful, not only to Philemon, but also to me, Paul says. So in other words, he, he became a co-worker with Paul. And, and Paul loves him, he calls him my very heart. That sounds you know, like he's very near and dear to Paul. And Paul would rather keep Onesimus with him. Verse 13 makes it clear. I, I would be glad to keep him with me. In other words, Onesimus is very dear to Paul. And uh, later in the letter in verse 16, Paul even calls him a beloved brother. So that's who Onesimus is. Now what about Philemon? Philemon, of course, is the major or the principal recipient of the letter. There's no doubt Paul thinks much of Philemon. Whatever you think of Philemon, Paul thinks much of him. Notice in verse one, he calls Philemon our beloved fellow worker. So he, he thinks of him as a, as a co-worker for the gospel. Also in verse two, I already mentioned this, but the church met in Philemon's house. And I think that speaks a lot to Philemon. Probably Philemon was a wealthy individual there were no church buildings back then, to make that really clear. No, no church buildings back then. It was, it was not seen upon as something that uh, uh, could even happen with the particular government under the Roman Empire at the time. And so churches would meet in houses. And that means whoever's wealthiest probably has the biggest house. And uh, ho hopefully they're godly and mature and all that sort of thing. And, and then we're going to go meet in that person's house a very different uh, situation than we have it today. My guess is Philemon has a pretty large house and uh, large enough to accommodate the entire church, and he's the host. He and my guess is Aphia is his wife, are the host and the hostess for the entire church. Well, Paul goes on in the Thanksgiving section, verses four and five, to talk about how much he loves Philemon. Notice he says, I thank my God always, in verse four, when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. In other words, Philemon is the one who has love and faith, which are great Christian words. Notice verse seven. 
Paul says, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That's a very high verse for Philemon, isn't it? He, he has refreshed, Philemon has refreshed the hearts of the saints. And therefore, that gives Paul much joy and comfort. Uh, later in the letter, Paul also goes on to call Philemon a brother. And so my point is, is that Philemon is clearly a Christian. Paul has such high regard for him. Paul has a good relationship with Philemon, as best as I can tell. Even at the very end of the letter, did you hear when Drew Lynn read this? He says, when I get out of prison, prepare a guest room for me, because I'm coming, right? (laughs) So so in other words, I think Paul knows Philemon, and I'm going to show up at at your house, and you're going to give me your guest room. So there's, a, there's an obvious relationship already between Paul and Philemon. Well, how does, how does this triangle of individuals work together? We got Paul, we got Onesimus, and we have Philemon. I think the key here, or the middleman, is Onesimus. Philemon seems to be a, a slave owner. Not sure that's the best word to use, but he certainly in his household has servants or bond servants or slaves or different uh, meanings associated with those English words. Onesimus was one of the slaves or one of the bond servants uh, or one of the household servants in Philemon's household. The reason I I say this, I'll just show a few verses to you, is notice, notice in verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says, formerly he was useless to you. In other words, Onesimus used to be with Philemon but he was useless to Philemon. Uh, We aren't told why he's useless, and yet he seems to have had that connection with Philemon in the past. Furthermore, in verse 13 and 14, Paul seems to feel this obligation socially, in some sense, to bring Philemon into the conversation about whether Onesimus can or should stay with Paul and under what conditions that might happen. So look at verse 13. He says, I I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But then verse 14 is interesting. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. In other words, that doesn't sound like Paul thinks Philemon has nothing to say to the conversation, but rather he wants to afford Philemon an opportunity to speak into the conversation, and Paul's telling him what he should say. There's no doubt what Paul thinks he should say, and yet he wants to... He wants to Philemon to join in this conversation, and my suggestion is because Philemon and Onesimus already have a relationship of some kind. It gets even clearer, though, as we continue to move in verses 15 and 16. What kind of relationship was that? Verse 15 says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In other words, you can hear the word bondservant is a key word there. Onesimus was parted from Philemon for a while, and Onesimus was a bondservant to Philemon. We aren't told why Onesimus was parted from Philemon. A lot of people think Onesimus was a runaway slave, perhaps so, 
The word runaway or fugitive is not used here, but that seems maybe as likely as any other suggestion. Why would a, a household servant be parted from their master after having been useless to them? Perhaps there's an indication in verse 18 that uh, Onesimus had wronged Philemon in some way. Notice verse 18 says, if Onesimus has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. In other words, there seems to be maybe a hint there that Onesimus has wronged Philemon, the master, in some way. Perhaps that fits with him being a runaway. Whatever, what, whatever we make of the parting, the point is he was a bondservant. That word is, is very clear in verse 16. So to sum up the historical situation, we have Onesimus, who is a servant in Philemon's household, Onesimus was parted from the master, Philemon, for some reason. We aren't sure why. And in God's providence, Onesimus made his way and was met by Paul. Again, we, we don't know the details here. He just happened to meet with Paul in God's providence. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. Onesimus becomes a Christian. And then at this point, Onesimus becomes useful to Paul and he's going to be useful to Philemon and thus the letter of Philemon. Paul writes this letter to Philemon, the master, about one of his servants who was parted for him, for, from him for a while. It's clear Paul would love for Onesimus to stay with Paul and yet he feels constrained in some, in some sense to let Philemon in on the conversation about what Paul hopes will happen. And the letter, Philemon, is written by Paul to Philemon, and I think Onesimus is gonna carry the letter. I think Onesimus is the letter courier. Onesimus is going back to his household from which he was parted, and, and, and the letter then is gonna serve as a kind of commendation of Onesimus uh, uh, to Philemon and his church. Now, I want to say maybe three minutes worth about what slavery or servitude was like back then, just to complete our introduction to the letter before we finally get to the good stuff. Um, those of you who are interested in uh, learning more about the Bible's perspective on slavery in the Old and New Testaments, uh, should watch a YouTube video by Peter Williams. Maybe some of you know that name. So Peter Williams has this really, a few years back, he gave a, gave a good lecture at the Lanier Theological Library in Houston, Texas. And uh, Peter Williams is a, is a British uh, scholar, New Testament scholar. And the YouTube lecture is called, Does the Bible Support Slavery? And um, he, he says over an hour worth of things, and I'm gonna give you like three minutes. So, so really, if what I'm getting ready to say you're interested in, I, I just uh, would recommend going to watch that lecture. Very, very helpful. Well, the main thing to note here is that it was common, it was common in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world in particular, for slaves or household servants to, to exist. Uh, one scholar estimates that in general, a third of the population of Greece and Italy would have been slaves. Many of the early Christians were slaves or masters, part of households where there were slaves or servants, if you like that word better. So first of all, it's very common. Another thing to just um, be careful uh, about 
is the kind of servitude back then was much different in kind than what typically comes to our mind when we think of the word slavery. I don't know about you, but often when I hear the word slave or slavery, I think of North American slavery. That's just a very common thing to think about, uh, where in the antebellum South, uh, uh, it was ethnicity and certainly even skin color in particular that was the product of slavery. Maybe it was the product of nationalism, uh, some, some people today run with Marxist categories, even when they think of slavery as, as though slavery entails a perpetual class struggle against the wealthy or whatever it might be. And I'm trying to distance the way slavery was back in the ancient world from what might come to your mind when you hear that English word. Um, Peter Williams says much more about that point, and I, again, recommend it. The slavery in Greece and Rome was certainly not a righteous thing, but it was much different than what America uh, uh, experienced. It was possible uh, to, for a slave to be well-educated, quite intelligent. It was possible for a slave to be freed. The word here is manumitted um, at the master's death, or you could just simply marry into a free person's family, uh, or maybe even marry into your master's family and be freed. Uh, you weren't allowed to be freed, however, until you were 30 years old. There were limits, according to Roman law, for how many slaves you could free if you were the master at any one time. If you had three slaves, you could free up to two of them, but not all three. If you had up to 10 slaves, you could free up to five of them. If you had 30 slaves, you could free up to 10 of them. Right? You guys get the point. There's, there's limits on emancipation, but emancipation could happen. And these slaves could go on and have uh, citizenship as long as, it was, as long as they were freed after the age of 30. Some Christians are troubled, <clears throat> just finally on this point, that Paul does not write to Philemon with a kind of abolitionist tone. Uh, this is not, Philemon is not an abolitionist treatise. At least it doesn't read like that. And uh, so some interpreters think, is Paul actually okay with slavery as an institution? And I think when you ask those questions, it's helpful to try to just get a sense for the historical and cultural milieu of the first century. There was no way, frankly, for Christians to change the legal system back then, unlike America in the 19th century. There, there, there was no way because of uh, their, their, their status under Roman law. There was no such thing as voting privileges. Um, there was no way to overturn it as an institution, so to speak. And also, if the slaves tried to uh, rebel, you can think of the story of Spartacus. I love the story of Spartacus, by the way. <laughs> but, but, but that was a slave revolt, and uh, you, can, you can see what happened to them. So, so frankly, um, slaves who rebelled would be executed. So with regard to this particular historical and cultural milieu, I think it's obvious these Christians, and we are in the same boat, we are all living life as best we can, caught up in a fallen, broken world. And it's difficult sometimes, I think it's right for all of us, it's difficult to discern the best way to please the Lord in light of our particular historical and cultural milieu whatever that might be. Certainly, I think Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon are caught up in that difficulty. And I think the, Paul's admonition to Philemon is admirable and um, is a wonderful testimony to the grace of the Lord and the power of the gospel in first century Greco-Roman context. With that, that was all kind of introduction. It's all downhill from here. So uh, this is the good stuff now, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll put a bow on it. The main point of the letter, and this is the second point if you're taking notes, that first point was just introduction, but the second point, and really the main point is, 
that Christians have fellowship in the faith. This letter strongly would have us to conclude that we should have, we should think of ourselves as Christians as having fellowship in the faith or because of the faith. And the the key verses here are verses uh, 15 through 20, where finally, finally, Paul gets to his point, verses 15 through 20. He says, for this perhaps, in verse 15, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So obviously Onesimus is going back to Philemon and the request is to receive Onesimus when he comes back as a brother, to receive him as Philemon would receive Paul himself. Philemon had refreshed many saints, uh, the earlier part says. And now in verse 20, Paul says again, I want you to refresh now my heart in Christ. Paul is pulling out all the rhetorical stops here to urge Philemon to receive Onesimus when he arrives. The, the word partner in verse 17 is the, our, is the same root as our word fellowship. So in other words, verse 17 means if you consider you Philemon and me to have fellowship in the faith, then receive Onesimus. And uh, I think therefore This is a powerful, powerful passage about the fellowship that Christians share across uh, social or economic classes. And this leads us to our first point, which you can see is a sub-point on the screen. Christians are family in Christ. Family language is all over this letter. Timothy's a brother, Aphia's is a sister. Philemon's called a brother twice in the letter. Uh, The church, the church even meets in a house, right? You can almost hear family language in uh, in that connection. Family language is just proliferated. And the point is, when you get to verse 16, when Onesimus is also called a brother, the point is, Philemon, you should treat him as family in Christ, He's not just gonna be a brother in the flesh, verse 16 says, he's also gonna be a brother in the Lord. He's coming back into your household as a human being, thus in the flesh, but he's also a brother in the Lord. He's a Christian now, and you need to consider him as family, as a brother. No matter who you are, no matter what kind of background you're coming from, if you are a Christian, you are part of the family of God. You are family in Christ. Those of us at Trinity Bible Church, we have committed ourselves, thus church membership. We have committed ourselves to be a part of this particular local family of God at 35th Ave and Peoria. And it doesn't matter whatever whatever your background is, whatever your status is in society, 
No matter your socioeconomic status, no matter how much salary or wage you earn, doesn't matter how large of a house you have or how green your grass is, mine's not for the record, or how large your car is or how nice or new it is or whether or not you have a vacation home. Every Christian is a family member of the family of Abraham, the family of God because of the gospel. I wanna say something with reference to Trinity in particular here. There, there are a lot of people here who are very formally uh, educated. I think education's wonderful. Uh, some people here have a lot of degrees and again, that's, I have a lot of degrees and I would do it all over again. I think it's wonderful. Um, and some in particular have been trained at seminary to lead and to teach in, in, a, in a local church setting. And I think it's natural and right for them to be leading and teaching in this particular local church. That is what they have been trained to do. It would be wrong to denigrate such formal education. And yet I wanna say, if, if you never graduated from high school, you're just as much of a member of the family of God as anyone else who has, who has a lot of formal education. We are actually brothers, aren't we, and sisters in Christ. I'm not speaking for any of the others uh, in the room who have their PhD, but uh, I do have one. I would much rather prefer you not call me Dr. Griever at this church because it's just weird to talk to your brother that way, frankly. Uh, some of you students that I teach at school, sure, but not here, right? <laughs> this, is, this is where we talk to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's frankly kind of weird. Go call your brother Dr. Griever. So that's just me. I'm not speaking for anyone else. <laughs> it's just me. Guys, the church is not a country club. It is not just another place to socialize or climb your uh, social ladder in life or whatever it might be. It's, it's frankly where your family meets. And so it's, it's, a, it's a significant way of thinking about who we are in Christ. A key expression of our family fellowship, of course, is when we take the Lord's Supper together. Just think about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Who can take, who can take the supper? It's not just those with a certain status, is it? It's not just the master of the household it's everyone in Christ who takes the Lord's Supper. It's, it's every baptized believer. And trust me, male and female get to be baptized and then they take from the table, don't they? It's every baptized believer, no matter their gender or their social status. And as long as they are in good standing, you might say, with their local church, they are to come to the table. They are to eat together. It's not just for the rich or just for the poor or for the old or the young. And, and... Have you ever wondered, why, why don't we do the Lord's Supper by ourselves? Because it's not an individualistic meal, is it? It's not an isolated meal. I don't know what type of family you're a part of. Generally, my family and I, we like to eat together. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. We don't eat and drink by ourselves, do we? We eat together, actually, at the same time. If you've been here, literally, it's at the exact same time. We're crunching and drinking at literally the exact same time. And that's meant to be an expression and, a, and even in some sense a cultivation of our fellowship with God and, and with one another. And so that's one clear expression of family fellowship. What a powerful image. Everyone in Christ who's been baptized into Christ comes to the table. I think pulse meetings you can see as our family business meetings. It's not just, it, 
It's not just a meeting where you come and deal with business, but it's where you come and deal with the family business. It's members meeting, so to speak, where you come and participate in the family business. Another point, besides just the fact that we are family in Christ, and you can see this on the screen, is that we are family in Christ forever. So it's not just family that will pass away, but it's actually family in Christ forever. And you can see this in verse 15. Verse 15 says, this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. And in that verse, the for a while is to be contrasted with the forever, right? So he was gone for a while and now he's back forever. And some interpreters think all Paul means is he's never gonna run away again. I don't think that's what he means. Because you're gonna receive him back not just as a brother in the flesh, but also as a brother in the Lord. And I wanna let the word forever have its proper weight here. I don't think the word forever is a throwaway word. I think it's a function of our hope for eternal life. We are family not just for a few years or a few decades, but we are family forever, actually. For all of eternity, we will be brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think, in a sense, this transcends, this kind of relationship transcends other relationships in life. Many of our relationships in the world come and go. Your coworker relationships, they don't last forever, do they? They, they, Those types of things come and go. Um, On Facebook, your friendships might ebb and flow, whatever that might look like. Even marriage, you know, marriage is wonderful, it's great, it's blissful. I can attest to that. But of course, it's a this world reality that testifies to the greater relationship that endures for all of eternity between Christ and the church. And I'm arguing that this kind of brother, sister, family relationship is of the world to come. That is to say, it's a a relationship that will never pass away. These relationships that I'm talking about in the church are bound up with the age to come, not the present age that passes away. And therefore, your church family relationship is a relationship that will never pass away. I think there is a foreverness, as verse 15 says. Well, finally, this is my third and final sub-point is that Christians should therefore receive one another as family. This is the main goal that Paul has for Philemon, and this is the main goal, this is the main application point for us today. Christians should receive one another as family. We, We refresh one another's hearts. That's that's the word that Paul says he wants Philemon to do for him. Refresh my heart, Philemon, by receiving Onesimus. So, with that being the main command of the letter, I want to argue that the main application for you to take from today's sermon is think of ways that you can receive others in Trinity Bible Church as family in Christ. Practically, don't look down on or shy away from others who don't seem to be much like you at the church. And I I started the sermon out by talking about in the world, everyone gravitates towards people who are exactly like them. And And I'm saying receiving Onesimus here by Philemon was asking for him to receive someone as a brother in Christ who was significantly different from a perspective of status in the world. So don't look down on or shy away from others who don't seem to be much like you, but greet them with the love of Christ. 
Seek to care for one another in tangible ways. So that means like go to one another's weddings or go to one another's funerals or visit one another when people need to be visited like you would a family member. Weep with one another like you would a family member. Rejoice with one another like you would a family member. Invite others over for a meal like you would a family member. It's great, we've been talking about community groups recently, you know, it's great when a community group is even comprised of people who are not just like one another in every way. They're, they're coming from different walks of life. That's a great community group, hopefully. Also, we wanna to pray together. We wanna to pray together and we wanna pray for one another as family. You know, there are two instances of prayer in Philemon. One is uh, expected. There's a typical prayer report in Paul's letters way back up in verse six, where Paul says, I, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. And then down in verse 22, Paul says, I'm hoping that you'll pray for me, because verse 22 talks about the guest room. He says, prepare a guest room for me because I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. In other words, Paul says, I'm praying for you, Philemon, and I want you to be praying for me. I don't think the prayers are the exact same. I take verse six to mean something like, Philemon, I'm praying that this idea of fellowship would actually have its proper effect or it would be rendered effective in this particular relationship with Onesimus. Verse six is actually a really challenging verse to understand, but I think that's the basic gist of it. I want you, I'm praying that you'll receive this well when it comes. From Philemon's perspective, he should be praying that Paul would be let out of prison so that he can be free to share the gospel in, in other kinds of ways and to come and, and even visit. And that's my point. We should be praying as family then for one another. So, however that looks in your life, I don't know. You can think of the thousands of ways that re receiving one another looks like as family members in this church. Whatever that looks like for you, may the Lord strengthen us. May the Lord strengthen us and make effective the fellowship of our faith so that Christ may be served here and glorified as he ought to be at Trinity Bible Church. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for this letter of Philemon. We're grateful that your spirit inspired Paul to write it in, in his kindness toward Philemon, and we pray for one another that our fellowship would be rendered effective. We pray that the gospel would be rooted in our hearts and have its proper effect because of what Christ has done for us in bringing us to you and to one another. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.